BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. What do you know? Paul Ryan, eight years later, finally says something I agree with. <laughs> What's going on? Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show on a third on a Wednesday. Sorry, uh, Wednesday, March 13, 2019. Of course, it is our pleasure to join you this morning, and uh, we are so grateful that you join us for our little roundup of the news of the day with. Uh, Best guest we could round up for today, and we got three really, really good ones for you. Uh, plus, all of you out there in radio land, in television land, and online as well, with lots to talk about. Yes, indeed, the United States still one of the few countries, it's I think the U.S. and Canada, uh, only countries on the planet that are still flying the 737 Super Max 8. Everybody else has grounded them till they figure out what the hell was going on. But, of course, aviation expert Donald Trump weighed in on that as well uh, yesterday. Yes, Paul Ryan is saying uh, if Donald Trump continues to be to make himself the center of attention, he's going to lose in 2020. Nancy Pelosi, as we discussed a little bit yesterday, saying impeachment is off the table. She's against it. She thinks Donald Trump is not worth it. And... Maybe what re, how refreshing that the biggest scandal of all is not a political scandal. It's a college admissions scandal. So much to talk about. So little time. So important to get your comments, which we look forward to on Twitter, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Yes. So Mercer, every year, puts out a list of the... Cities with the best quality of life in the world. In the world. Do you have a guess as to which one it is? Well, that's awfully. Well, let me tell you how they. Let me tell you Paris, first. I mean, yeah. how how they how they figure this out. Planet. Okay. 
Uh, so they look at salary levels for expatriate employees. That's part of it. They look at housing, political stability, crime, leisure, air pollution, infrastructure, the health system, education, and the economy. All right, Amsterdam. Amsterdam is a good guess. For the 10th year in a row, it is Vienna. Vienna, they say, is... Vienna, Virginia? Not Vienna, Virginia. Oh. <laughs> no, not Vienna, Virginia. Oh, yeah, see, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a, that's what are a, we talking about? Here? Yeah. yeah. Vienna has been named the really? city with the best quality of life huh. for the 10th consecutive year. In second place was Zurich, followed in third place by Munich. Huh. Fourth yeah. was Vancouver, and fifth was Auckland, New Zealand. Pretty interesting list, right? Now, uh, are there any American cities in I'm the I'm glad top you 10? asked. There are no American cities. Wow. And the top 25, New York is number 44. Whoa. Yeah. San Francisco? Uh, San Francisco. I don't see San Francisco on the list, but. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we often talk about how politics makes for strange bedfellows. Uh, yesterday, I, this is one of the weirdest ones that we've seen yet. Ted Cruz agrees with Elizabeth Warren. Believe on, it or not. Yeah, on we, what? Well, we talked about this story yesterday about how she had these ads that were up on Facebook talking about breaking up the big tech companies, and Facebook took them down temporarily. They put them back up, but they did take them down. Well, Ted Cruz retweeted Elizabeth Warren and said, I've never retweeted her before, but she is right. Big tech has way too much power to silence free speech. They should not be censoring Elizabeth Warren or anybody else. This is a serious threat to our democracy. But I'm telling I you. I hate to give Ted Cruz credit I, I for do anything. Too. But, you know, as we talked discussed a little bit yesterday, it is open season on the high, on the big tech companies. Yeah, it is. And they brought it on themselves. Absolutely. You know, yeah, so. absolutely. Can't, uh, can't feel sorry for them. And, you know, what's interesting is the Republicans have sort of carved out this whole idea that the big tech companies and social media are sort of shadow banning them right which is bs but yeah. this is a reason for them to get behind it i guess right this is the bill press show hey so you thought it was tough getting into college get your getting your kids into college hell no just pay for it <laughs> That's what we found out yesterday. A lot of people have been doing at some very big name universities in this country. What do you say, folks? Happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday, March 13. And it's good to see you today. We appreciate very much your climbing on board as we start off here. For the next two hours, we'll be bringing you the news of the day from every angle on every front, whether it's happening here in Washington, D.C., around the country or around the globe, you know we're on top of it. We'll tell you all about it, give you our little perspective, uh, progressive <laughs> spin on the news of the day, and open up the, the Twitter line so you can give us your comments as well. You know how to do that? Just go to Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Whether you join us online, on the radio, or on television, on television, of course, on Free Speech TV, on the radio, the great WCPT out in Chicago. You're looking good today in Chicago and statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks. Wherever you are on this great planet of ours, we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Also, the site of our podcast, uh, uh, the location of our podcast, which you can grab 
any time during the day uh, and catch up with parts of the show you might have missed uh, a little bit earlier. Again, good to have you with us today. Hannah Trudeau will be joining us from the National Journal. She's the author of the OG 2020 report. And we'll take a look on all the latest, uh, including the latest little teases, if you will, from Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke. Uh, we'll also be joined by Jordan Fabian, covers the White House for The Hill, our good friend Jordan Fabian. Molly O'Toole from the L.A. Times covers uh, immigration issue. Our guest coming up just a, a little bit later here with the entire, with all of you and uh, the Bill Press team. Yes, indeed. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm starting to get a little nervous because this is the second day in a row um, that uh, I find myself agreeing with the enemy camp. I mean, what's going on? Yesterday... I had to admit, um, both Peter and I did, that we agreed with Donald Trump when, yes, did you, hear, you heard that correctly, uh, when God. we agreed with Donald Trump when he said, only on one issue, by the way, that he'd be okay with just keeping daylight savings time uh, around the, all year long and not doing this Mickey Mouse back and forth uh, and forcing us to lose an hour's sleep and all that stuff. Just keep it daylight savings time. Fine with me. Yeah. I, I agree. I think Donald yeah, Trump I, is right. But I did have to point out that one of uh, our followers on Twitter uh -oh, uh -oh. said, it should not be overlooked that the single most sensible thing Trump has ever said was literally about how many times a broken clock is right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. So. Can't give him too much credit. Yeah, exactly. So he got that one. So that then, I mean, and that was, uh, that, that was very painful to have to agree with Donald Trump. Um, and now for the second day in a row, I've got to agree with one of these Republican outliers. And that is something Paul Ryan said yesterday. Paul Ryan giving a speech down in Vero Beach, California. That's what failed politicians do. They get a lot of money for giving speeches, uh, giving a speech down there, some group in Vero Beach, Florida. And he said, uh, I'll read you the exact quote. He said, quote, about 2020, quote, the person who defines that race is going to win the race. If this is about Donald Trump and his personality, he isn't going to win it. In other words, if the issue is Donald Trump, <coughs> says Paul Ryan, Donald Trump loses. You know what? And he's absolutely right. And... He's right about this. There is no way the issue will be anything other than Donald Trump. It can't be anything else because <laughs> that's all Donald Trump talks about himself, right? Every tweet is about himself. Every rally is about himself. Every White House appearance is about himself. When he comes out to talk to us on his way out to Marine One, it, he talks about himself. So Democrats don't have to make Donald Trump the issue. Donald Trump, you can count on it, will talk about uh, himself and make himself the issue because we all know he is the best president ever, the most successful president ever, the smartest president ever, the richest president ever, and... Um, author of the best-selling book in history called The Art of the Deal. Wait, I, so you're making so, a joke, but, uh, <laughs> but 
No, literally just no, now. I'm not. Literally just now, <laughs> Donald Trump tweeted. Oh, no. I greatly appreciate Nancy Pelosi's statement against impeachment, but everyone re- must remember the minor fact that I never did anything wrong. The economy and unemployment there are the best go. ever. Military and vets are great. And many other successful uh, and many other successes. How do you impeach a man who is considered by many to be the president with the most successful two years in history, especially when he has done nothing wrong and impeachment is for high crimes and misdemeanors? So he's he's tooting his own horn this morning. He just made my point. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So so there it is. <laughs> Further confirming uh, why Paul Ryan is right. But, okay, you know what? Let's put the politics aside for a second. How refreshing to have a day when the biggest scandal is not a political scandal. The biggest scandal of the day, and it is an unbelievable story, is this college admissions scandal, this college admissions major fraud where um, some 50 people charged yesterday with this elaborate scheme to get kids into some of the biggest and best universities in the country, uh, they were they were doing all kinds of stuff, including bribing coaches, just giving big, huge grants to these universities, uh, paying people to take the tests for their kids, bribing the SAT administrators. It's un freaking believable. I, I have to tell you, this is a story that I normally would not be super oh, no. into, yeah, this is... but I have now become an expert on it. <laughs> like, I'm fascinated it's big by time. this story. And so, the, it really was, a lot of these, uh, there, there were a couple of celebrities, Felicity Huffman, uh, yeah, an yeah. actress, probably best known for uh, Desperate Housewives a couple years ago, well, many years ago, uh, and Lori Laughlin, who was on Full House. Uh, they were part of it. There was also like a super high-powered attorney in L.A., and they were going to extraordinary lengths to get their kids into the colleges of their choice. And it all centers around this one guy. uh, William Singer. William Singer. He's the guy that put the whole plan together. And he sort of ran a, like, I'm not sure how you refer to it. I mean, it was a scam. Uh, Not a scam. Yeah. But it was was a scam in some ways. But he ran sort of like this fixing operation where he was bribing uh, test administrators to allow other people to take tests for these kids. Yeah, yeah. He was bribing them to allow the kids to cheat. Right. Uh, And it was all under the guise of some phony charity. It was a charity, They would get money, they would get a tax deduction, but what it really was is getting their kids into these colleges. So the U.S. attorney up there in Massachusetts who announced it yesterday uh, Andrew Yelling? Lelling. Lelling, Lelling. 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 Andrew Lelling. Here's how many people were charged. We've charged 50 people nationwide with, with participating in a conspiracy that involved, first, cheating on college entrance exams, meaning the SAT and the ACT. Yeah. And second, securing admission to elite colleges by bribing coaches at those schools to accept certain students under false pretenses. Yeah. So in terms of the SATs, they would either bribe the SAT administrator to look the other way and basically it was rigged, right, uh, accept a, a lower score or change the score. Yeah. In some instances, they would have somebody go in and take and cha- well, change, go, the oh, change the after score after the fact. Yeah. But also, like they you were took saying- people, they t- there were people, they would pay people uh, to come in and take the test 
Boy, it was an elaborate scheme. Oh, yeah, right. That was one side of it. The other side is, again, the bribes that they paid to uh, admissions officials in the at the universities or, in some cases, coaches. And they use rather minor sports like crew, right, um, or lacrosse or something like that to get their kids a phony athletic certificate or bona fides. Uh, and then the coach would take the money and say, oh, yeah, we need them on our team, and they would get in that way. I mean, so among the p- 50 people, there were two SAT administrators, nine coaches, and 33 parents. They paid anywhere from 250 grand up to six and a half million to get their kids into these colleges. And by the way, we're not talking some little two-year college you never heard of, right? Or some little community school you never heard of. No, no. We're talking USC, Yale, Stanford, Georgetown. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's and it was nationwide. Crazy. Yeah, completely crazy. And like, you know, extracurricular activities look great <laughs> when you're trying to get into a college and some of these kids didn't really do any sports or anything. No. And so what, my favorite part of the whole story is so Lori Laughlin, the actress, her daughter, they wanted to make it look like she did crew. Yeah. And they put her on a rowing machine, <laughs> like at the gym, and took photos of her. Like an so, orange theory across yeah, the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like one of those rowing machines. <laughs> yeah. And, fo- and th- so that they could Photoshop her into a picture of somebody else rowing. To make it look like she was doing it as part of... It's crazy. Right. Um, from um, At the same news conference yesterday with uh, Andrew Lelling, the U.S. attorney from Massachusetts, uh, Christina O'Connell uh, led the FBI team, which was part of this investigation, uh, talking about uh, how, much, how much money we're talking about. Overall, IRS criminal investigation and the FBI traced over $25 million in bribes laundered through the alleged charity founded by Singer. Imagine that. $25 million. So, you know, all these families, and I know a lot of them, and I went through it, or we've been through it ourselves, but, you know, the the angst of getting your kid into college and deciding what college and then studying for the SATs and taking the SATs and waiting for that letter, I mean, that whole thing. Uh-uh. These families, man, that... It wasn't hard for them. Well, it, they just yeah, no, they of just not. wrote a big check. Yeah, that, what was interesting about that the press idea conference that they would cheat on this, yeah, right? that they would do this and think they could get away with it. Well, what, they did for years. One of the interesting things about the press conference is they pointed out, look, with these kids that got into this school, this means that there was another kid that did not get into that school, and so that's Good why point. they're taking it so seriously. Good point. You yeah. know that yeah. th- those kids who cheated and bribed their way into God forbid that you would do it fair you know right fairly on your right. own merit on your own right there was actually this is very sad because there was there were some transcripts released uh, and this the one of the ones with Felicity Huffman the actress and uh, this this guy singer uh, she's complaining because her daughter took the SAT or the ACTs and didn't get a score that she wanted but she wanted to take it again because she thought she could do better. And yeah. the mother, Felicity Huffman, was saying, no, 
no, no, no. We don't want her to take it again. We want no, to just get her right. into the school. Yeah. We don't want to deal with this again. No, no. So, like, the no. kid wanted to try, <laughs> and the mom was saying, no, no. no. And, the, and the, the really messed up part is some of these kids are still in college. Oh, yeah. Like, imagine, they're still there. Imagine what how they feel, Yeah, right? And yeah. so now the colleges sort of have to make a decision. Do what do leave? we do? Right. Well, and I must say, I would hope in that case they'd leave the kids there. I would hope so, just you know, because I that mean, would be yeah, so disruptive. Yeah, and, right. and by the way, they don't they punish them out. for the sins of their parents. Exactly. Uh, maybe just make them um, like wear some sort of sticker. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. The scarlet Phony. letter. Phony of Scarlet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. They pointed out, by the way, that none of the colleges were in on this. Just, you know, they, they didn't know. They didn't, you know, they, they had no part in this. They just sort of accepted the tests well, and things like that as they were presented but, to them. But some of the admissions people in some of the colleges yes. were in on this. Yes. Yes. Right. And some of the coaches. Yeah. Several coaches, I think, have already been fired because. Oh, were, yeah. No, they, yeah. Uh, they they were like, named no. on this. Uh, and I thought, um, uh, I mentioned this, this is non political. Uh, but it does underscore uh, something that um, Bernie Sanders and and Elizabeth Warren particularly have been saying. Uh, and our guest yesterday wrote this new book about the billionaire's boondoggle. It fits right in. Elizabeth Warren, I thought, sort of summed it up yesterday. Uh, in a sense, why should we be shocked about this? It's just more of the same. To me, it's just one more example of how the rich and powerful know how to take care of their own and everybody else just gets left behind. I think that's wrong. Yeah, good point. I think she's absolutely right. One more example of how somehow got enough money, right? They'll find a way. You know, it, it it's really— and of course, we'll give them another tax, buy, tax cut. Of course. It's really <laughs> fascinating that as we enter this uh, phase of politics where politicians are not afraid to say, yeah, wealthy people need to pay their fair share of taxes, that we continue to get smacked in the face with these stories of— Rich people doing very unethical things yeah, right. with their money. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the uh, stories still, um, big stories still are moving on. Um, the United States and Canada stand just about alone today uh, in not grounding this new plane, the new Boeing plane, 737 uh, Supermax, which was involved, of course, in that Indonesian airline a couple of months ago. And the most recent one, uh, just uh, this week, Ethiopia Airlines, um, with everybody on board killed. And in both cases, uh, both planes crashing very shortly after takeoff. And in both cases, pilots complaining, um, reporting that they had some difficulty controlling the plane because of some, some malfunction uh, in, the, uh, in the equipment of the plane. Um, and so China, India, Australia... The EU, even Iceland, have, have stopped flying this uh, 737. Uh, the United States, the FAA, says, no, nope, we're going to allow it to continue to fly. Uh, the United States and Canada, I think, again, the only, about the only two countries uh, that, have, that, have, uh, that, that have stuck with it. Um, yesterday, there were several voices speaking, and let's go back to Elizabeth Warren for just a second, who are saying, come on, let's get with it and at least take the precaution of grounding them temporarily until we know what the hell is going on. Makes sense to me. Here's Elizabeth you know, Warren. You know, what's supposed to come first is the safety of people who are flying in those airplanes, the American public, not the profits of Boeing. Uh, amen. Amen to that. 
uh, and Elizabeth Warren, uh, echoing Elizabeth Warren, was Senator Richard Blumenthal from uh, from Connecticut uh, as well. Senator Blumenthal says uh, he and Senator Dianne Feinstein both said, oh, no, 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 let's ground these puppies. The 737 MAX 8 should be immediately grounded until the FAA can assure us that they are safe. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but on, then you've got Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. Senator Graham said, no, no, no. Uh, I totally trust the FAA. I'll leave that to FAA. I mean, I'm, I'm, we have very confident people. We'll leave it up to the experts. Leave it up to the experts. You know, I wonder how much the FAA is being influenced by the Trump White House. Part of the deal, uh, and this has been reported, that Donald Trump signed in Hanoi with the government of Vietnam is for Vietnam to buy 110 of these Supermax planes. So I'm I'm sorry, don't mean to be a conspiracy person here, but the last thing Donald Trump wants is for the Supermax, he just sold 110 of them, uh, to be considered so unsafe that we wouldn't fly them. I, I, I think, I hope somebody, maybe got better sources than I do, looks into whether or not Donald Trump is ordering the FAA, no, hands off this plane, we just sold 110 of them, we got to make sure that they continue to fly. When, when you um, think about the people that he associates with, the people that he sees yeah. on the golf course, all of this stuff, like the, I can easily see a situation where absolutely somebody told him, you cannot ground these planes. By the way, I just want to point out, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> at BP Show, at BP Show, we asked you the question, should the U.S. ground all Boeing 737 MAX planes after two fatal crashes in the last five months? You get a choice, yes, no, or undecided. Mm-hmm. We'll check in with the results a little bit later oh. on, but go check it out on Twitter. At BP Poll show. is up right now. Poll is up right now. Okay, right good. Now. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, airline expert uh, Donald Trump uh, did weigh in yesterday about his take. He actually tweeted this out yesterday morning. His take on this whole um, question about the safety of the uh, the new 737. Uh, quote, Donald Trump says, Airplanes are becoming far too complex to fly. Pilots are no longer needed, but rather computer scientists. From MIT, I see it all the time in many products, always seeking to go one unnecessary step further when often old and simpler is far better. (laughs) Yes. What's he talking about? Yes. I mean, for the most part, airline travel has become so safe, so much safer than it used to be, right? I mean, there were, I can remember when there were several major... Sure tragic crashes a year, right? It's rare now. Donald Trump continues, split-second decisions needed, and the complexity creates danger. All of this for great cost, yet very little gain. I don't know about you. (laughs) He's hallucinating. I don't know about you, but I don't want Albert Einstein to be my pilot. (laughs) (laughs) Famed pilot, Albert Einstein. Yeah, right. I want great flying professionals that are allowed to easily and quickly take control of a plane. Um, <laughs> uh, this is, uh, I might point out, uh, by airline, again, uh, the, the comments of airline expert Donald Trump, who we remember had his own airline at one time, the Trump shuttle. How'd that do? Yikes. 
Yeah. Talk about something. Uh, well, I don't want to use the <laughs> the phrase, but uh, at any rate, one of his, not one of his more successful businesses. Just yeah. imagine. I mean, just think about what he's saying. We should go yeah. backwards. Right. Yeah. We should go backwards. Let's go back to Kitty Hawk. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm not going to be happy until we're taking gyrocopters across the country. I don't want any plane that has any sophisticated no way, navigation man. equipment or, you know, just driving or flying equipment. No, no, no. I want right. Okay. All right, Donald. Very, very good. Um, big news out of California. Governor Gavin Newsom, proving he's a take charge kind of guy uh, today, is going to sign an executive order as governor, which will put a total moratorium on the death penalty on executions in California. California a long time ago went from uh, the gas chamber to lethal injection, not even that anymore. There are, by the way, 700, imagine that, in San Quentin, just north of San Francisco. Um, drive by there all the time on my way to our home in California. Uh, 737 people on death row in San Quentin. Uh, they all get a reprieve, but Governor Newsom is very quick to point out none of them are going to be released, none of them are going to get out of prison, if they're not facing the death penalty, they're going to be there for life, by the way, which is cheaper than going through the whole process has been proven many, many times of trying to um, execute them. Uh, he simply says it is wrong, morally wrong, and has proven to be um, fairly unfairly applied in this country. Um, you're much more likely to get the death penalty if you are poor and a racial minority. Uh, and for all those reasons... Um, He's just he's going to end it today. In this California, is wonderful news, which I think is this is great, great news. news really. And every progressive governor in the state, in if the, you happen to be yeah. uh, in a state that allows the death penalty, should follow this lead. Yeah, and you know other states have done. Illinois did it, and yeah. because for Illinois, and it wasn't a uh, it was a, it wasn't a Democrat there it was a Republican. They just found that there were so many people who had been put to death and then found innocent after we'd already executed them, or people on death row who by the, um, I forget the name of that great um, organization that tracks these people down, people on death row who were found to be innocent of the crimes that they were serving time for. Uh, and so that just it, it's just a very imperfect um, system, if you will, or process. And it's and Governor Newsom ending it in California. Uh, one other news on the Catholic Church front, Cardinal George Pell this is big news yesterday. He was, for quite a time, the senior Catholic official in Australia. He went from Australia to the Vatican, where he was one of the closest senior advisors to John Paul II and to Cardinal uh, and to Pope Francis. Uh, and George Pell accused, taken back to Australia, put on trial for molesting. To choir boys, yesterday he was sentenced to six years in prison, uh, the highest official yet of the Catholic Church to um, to be convicted and to face prison time. Maybe we're starting to take it a little more seriously and to clean it up and bring these people uh, to trial I hope so. rather than trying to bury it uh, inside the church and consider it a church administration problem. It is not. It's a law enforcement problem. 
Uh, yeah, one final note as we, uh, as we move on. I saw yesterday, we talked a little bit about the president's budget that came out yesterday. It's dead on arrival. Congress is never going to pass the, that budget the way, uh, they never do any president's budget the way it's proposed. Uh, but one key part of that uh, budget, which was a $4.7 trillion budget, if you remember, which includes $8.6 billion for the wall and another $50 billion or so for the Pentagon, um, pointed out this morning in the Washington Post, uh, as part of the budget, the Trump administration admits that by 2020, 20, sorry, 2025, the, na- the national debt, so when Donald Trump were he reelected would leave office, the national debt would be $22.8 trillion. Let's make it rounded off, $23 trillion. This is uh, Donald Trump, who, as a candidate, remember, promised he was going to eliminate the national debt in eight years. He's a businessman. He said he knew how to do it. Don't worry about the national debt. I'll take care of it in eight years. Uh, At this point, what Donald Trump in his budget is admitting, that the national debt, which was $14.7 trillion when he took office, will be $23 trillion, in other words— it will have increased by 50%. Good grief. Thank you, Donald Trump. Quick break. When we come back, Hannah Trudeau is the author of the OG 2020 newsletter, looking, of course, at all the excitement uh, for 2020 and all the candidates already in. Does that for the National Journal. Joins us next. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back on the 2020 front. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, you bet it is Wednesday, March 13. Hello, 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 and welcome to the program. Great to see you today. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, joining you all over this great land of ours. Uh, Here in our studio in Washington on Capitol Hill, we're brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters. We're going to be talking 2020 this half hour uh, with Hannah Trudeau from the National Journal. And it was at the International Association of Firefighters Legislative Conference yesterday here in Washington that the firefighters were chanting, run, Joe, run, and Joe Biden giving maybe the biggest hint yet that he will be a candidate in 2020, uh, telling the firefighters didn't make the announcement yesterday, but saying save that good those good wishes. I'll need them in a week or so. Uh, check out the firefighters' great work under the leadership of Harold Schaitberger, President Harold Schaitberger at IAFF IAFF dot org. Uh, again, the aforementioned Hannah Trudeau joining us from the National Journal and author of the. OG 2020 <laughs> newsletter. You're on top of all of this. Hi, Hannah. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Thank you. We want to check in before we move forward. A, a little look back at the last half hour and some of the comments received. Yes, Lots of comments on Twitter, at BP Show, Ooh. at BP Show. And we have this poll up, too, right? We do have a poll. I'll get into that in just a okay. second. First of all, we talked about this college scandal, mm-hmm. yes. uh, which is one of the more fascinating stories yes. of, the, of the day. Yes. Uh, KG love says, it, I love this. You know, it's fascinating story. Fascinating yeah, story. I don't love the story. Right. Uh, KG says, finally, we have a non-political scandal. <laughs> They're very, everybody's wow. very excited about that. <laughs> uh, Damian Patterson says, the kids need to be kicked out because who knows how complicit they were <laughs> in some of these schemes. Now, they did address that some of the kids were complicit and did take part of it, and some yeah. of the kids did not. So 
Just putting that out there. Also, back to politics. Uh, Lindsey Graham says he wants. I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm thinking about that. Like, if I knew that my parents were spending three million dollars to get me into Yale, yeah, I might say, you know what? I'll go to the community college. Give me that three million. (laughs) (laughs) Know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how many had a choice. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good point. I could have. Think a lot of fun you could have with that three million. Absolutely, you, you never have to work a day in your life. <laughs> uh, we also, as you mentioned, we have the poll up on Twitter. Uh, should the U.S. ground <laughs> all of the Boeing seven thirty seven Max airplanes after two fatal crashes in the last five months? Uh, we've already got a lot of votes on this. Ninety two percent of you say yes. By uh-huh. the way, three percent of you say no. Five percent of you are undecided. Audio Jode says Lindsey Graham says we should leave it up to the experts at the FAA. Okay, Lindsay, let's talk about climate change. Should we talk to the experts about that? <laughs> very, very good point. Oh, no, that is a very good point. And Dennis Dunbar says, you know what we need to fix the problem, Bill? We need clean coal airplanes. Clean coal <laughs> is coming back, and that's going to fix the problem. If you have a comment on any topic at any time, just find us on Twitter at BP Show. Yeah. You know, I, I it seems to me it's like if there's a problem with – an automobile, the auto manufacturers recall the automobile until yeah. they they fix them, right? They, f- they fix the problem and they fix the cars. Have. So yeah. I, I think it would just make it makes sense. Obviously, there does seem to be a problem with this uh, Supermax 737. Uh, I, I don't see why people would oppose just grounding them all <laughs> for the time. We're not saying they'll never fly again, but just make sure that the systems are sound yeah. before they put them back up in the air. I, I wouldn't get on one. wouldn't <laughs> want to get on one. Uh, sometimes you don't know what... Uh, yeah, I never check thing, yeah. I never check the plane that I'm Me flying either. until I get on, right? Yeah, no. So I think I will from now on. <laughs> so, Hannah, yesterday, Joe Biden here in one run. Yes. Uh, and he came close to saying, I'm in, huh? He's come close so many times, it's hard I to keep know, track. Yeah. <laughs> um, he did come close yesterday, and I think the general consensus now is that he is all but pulled the, the trigger this time. I think he's really shown many signs over the past couple of weeks, and, and certainly even in the past couple of days, um, that he's inching closer and closer towards that run. Right. Um, the question the, the question remains, Obviously, he's got name ID. Mm-hmm. He's got more experience than anybody else. Um, is he the Hillary of 2020? Uh, yikes. Well, I think he hopes not. Instant, you know, instant <laughs> front runner, but doesn't yeah. make it. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. I think he's instant front runner, like you know, because of the things you just mentioned. But can he sustain that throughout the you know? 12 months left or so of the, the primary process. So I think that's the real question. And um, I think even looking ahead into June, that's that's when the debates start ramping up on stage. And I think that that's going to be a real test for him. Yeah. First debates in June, second debate in July. Yeah. But I also think, you know, look, uh, he, so the news about Kamala Harris, when she announced, was she raised like two million? Was it whatever it was? One point five. Yeah. 5, okay. Twenty four hours. Within yeah. twenty four hours, mm-hmm. the news about Bernie mm-hmm. was that he raised ten million, right? Yeah, in the first, first week. First week. Yep. Uh, six million in the first day. The news about Pete Buttigieg over the weekend was that he got six hundred grand, right? Yes. After his CNN town hall. Yes. Um, there's going to be a story about how much Joe Biden has raised. Yes. And Joe. 
the vice president doesn't have, I believe. He doesn't have the organization that Bernie does. He doesn't have the mailing. He doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Even Elizabeth Warren has that donor base, that small donor base, which is where this money is coming from. It's not coming from big, classic, typical Democratic donors writing big checks. Yes. I think that's a great point with Joe Biden. I think that's the key point because so many of these um, contenders who were making headlines like Bernie and Kamala Harris and um, even Warren when she first announced, they did rely on those small donors. And I think his the model for his candidacy is going to be completely opposite of that. I don't I don't see a lot of small donor support for him right now. Um, I think that's not where he's going to be expected to get the bulk of his money. I think he's going to go a more traditional route. Um, and it's just it's going to you know, we're going to have to wait and see if people are going to call him out on that in terms of, um, you know, we're all sort of doing the small donor thing. And, and why aren't you? Right. Yeah. So that so that Biden will be like the front runner. He will also be the establishment centrist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. old fashioned kind of candidate. Yeah, and he's pretty much the only one outside of um, Amy Klobuchar, if you count her. But even even she is um, slipping gradually in the polls. So um, also, and she's a lot younger. And, she's a lot younger, and, yeah, and she has some I, advantages. You know, being a woman, it certainly doesn't hurt this time around. And she's she's from the Midwest too. Um, but she's she's the only one I would say in that centrist lane besides Biden. And now that Sherrod Brown has announced that he's not going to run, um, I think that clears the path for Biden. Right. Um, and it's it pretty clear, too, uh, and I was talking to a good friend of mine, Democratic strategist, yesterday, that one of the key factors in Sherrod Brown's decision was he really expects Biden to run. And yeah. he thought that would basically um, close, shut down the path or the lane that he was he would have taken. Yeah, and I've heard that from people, too, and I think that that's true. I so th- are there others, Steve Bullock, Terry McAuliffe, who won't run because Joe— well, if Joe runs, yeah, I think it's possible. I think, um, you know, I think we saw Eric Holder not run. We've seen a few people um, who are who are thinking about it not run. Mitch Landrew is another one. Um, sort of, I guess, smaller tier people. Um, but Terry McAuliffe um, would occupy a little bit of that same centrist lane. Um, in in some senses, he's um, he's quite you know close to the Clintons, and so there's there's always that connotation with him. Um, and and I don't know. I think um, his decision will hinge on on Biden a little bit too, just the way that Sherrod's did. Right. Um, and the one who um, would not probably um, be impacted by whatever decision Biden makes is Beto Beto O'Rourke, <laughs> who I I just saw this morning. Now he's off to some extended tour of Iowa yes. this weekend, backing a state senate candidate yes. and doing some get out the vote <laughs> rallies. Yeah. What is up with him? Yeah. Um, so it's it's been a long time coming from the Iowa people's standpoint on uh, on his arrival. I, I've been talking to, to folks in Iowa for um, almost two years now who have been long anticipating, or at least since the midterms and as the midterms were ramping up, um, his arrival in Iowa. And they hadn't heard a peep from him. Um, they also hadn't heard a peep from Biden up until recently. So um, the jury was out on both of them in Iowa specifically. And I think um, now that he is coming... Um, now that Beto is coming, I think it's it's going. People are really waiting to see how he's going to do because there's been a lot of anticipation for him, and they just haven't heard from him since since recently. So, what is his fundraising base? Like, well, he proved that he had one running for Senate. Yeah, does that translate into a? presidential campaign? Well, so that remains to be seen also. I'm a little bit more skeptical on that, I think, just because he had $80 million worth of fundraising for the Senate campaign. Um, But I think, 
you know, that was a really historic campaign and a historic chance to take on Ted Cruz, who is one of the most hated senators from the Democratic side. Um, so people nationally donated to that Senate campaign in order to help him oust, potentially mm-hmm. oust Cruz. Um, does that translate to uh, feeling that same inspiration as an individual candidate when there are a dozen other people? I'm, ju- I'm just not sure that that will necessarily translate. Um, how, it how- could. So um, as you reminded us, and um, we um, talked to the DNC the other day, Mm -hmm. the first debate is, they don't have a date yet, but it's going to be mid-June. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, He's got to move pretty fast if he wants to be part of that debate. Yeah, and I think he won't have any problem meeting the threshold. I think it's 65,000 individual um, donors, so I think um, he should be... From 20-some states. From 20-something states, yeah, and I think that that's doable for him. I mean, there's a lot of still excitement around him, and and, um, certainly the name ID I don't think is going to be a problem because a lot of people were plugged into his his midterms uh, sort of campaign. Um, But... Yeah, I think he'll make it to the debate. I'm just not sure that that donor base will, the, the 80 million that he pulled in will be completely with him this time. All right. Now then, as if we thought we had all the uh, potential candidates identified and and we have our eye on them, whether some have dropped out, some are in, mm-hmm. some are still waiting. And then suddenly Stacey Abrams this week says... 2020 is definitely still on the table. I can't believe that was just this week. Oh, my gosh. It feels like a month ago that she said that. Yeah. Yeah. South by Southwest. She mentioned that. I think that's a big that would be a huge game changer for a lot of different people's campaigns. Um, Kamala Harris, chief among those. Uh, Cory Booker, among those. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, another woman running, prominent woman. so yeah, I think I, I'm I'm curious to know what what she's thinking about because she's not taking it off the table. But is there any sign that she is, um, st- like again, the strategist I talked to yesterday has talked to people who are get, getting hired. I mean, mm. by campaigns, the campaigns are out there. They're looking for yes. posters and uh, grassroots fundraisers and all that kind of stuff. And and they're building up a team. Yes. Right? Um, I saw yesterday Bernie announced uh, three or four new state chairs. Yeah, or not staffers, right? Yeah, yeah. Is Stacey Abrams? I haven't. I haven't seen her doing that. Now that's not to say she's not doing it under the radar. Um, I haven't. She hasn't done it in in an overt way that some of the other people, when they started hiring and and. you know, hiring pollsters and staffers in early states has. But I think um, I think a lot of people see a legitimate reason for her to run in, in the sense that she, she sort of had the campaign robbed from her and, and with a lot of voter suppression tactics that were used. And so I think that there's enough energy for her if she does decide to run. Um, I don't think she's going to be an immediate flop. I think she will have a lot of um, excitement around her campaign, at least in the beginning. But I thought that it was sort of locked in that she was going to run for Senate. I thought so too, but I, I, I guess nothing is locked in anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, and she still might, you know, she still might. So you were, you and I were, were agreeing before um, we went live that the number is 14 who yes. are in right now. <laughs> yes, right? 14. Of the 14, uh, we sort of know who the front runners are. Who do you think are the ones who are most likely to drop out first? Oh, jeez, that's harsh. Um, I know. Yikes. Well, I hate to to put the governor, throw the governors under the bus, um, but I just, I guess, just for the sake of argument, I would say probably Jay Inslee and John Hickenlooper um, might not get enough traction. They're both declared candidates now. They both announced within days of each other. 
um, mm-hmm. kind of making a, a stake at that governor lane. Um, but I don't I don't see them catching on so much. Jay Inslee's running as a single issue climate change candidate, which is a relevant topic for the party right now. But I don't see a lot of climate activists gravitating towards him. Um, at so least he has an issue. What's Hick- he what's has Hick- an issue? So he, has, he does have an issue. issue and he also has a pack. So, you know, that's a separate issue, um, but potentially. But. Um, Hickenlooper's issue, I'm not quite sure what he's running on. Um, sort of more of a pragmatist. Fumes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, th- I would I would have to say I'd put my put my bet on them to drop out first. And not Marianne Williamson. Well, who knows <laughs> about her? Yeah, it's hard to tell. No, I don't think it's hard to tell. About I think her. <laughs> I think Andrew Yang I think will be in there at least till he's qualified for the debate, so he'll be in there for the debate. He's our candidate. <laughs> Any presidential candidate who comes in the studio uh, will endorse. Right? Okay. Uh, at least we'll, we'll, we'll help him out as much as I'll we can. I'll have to tell some of them to come in then. Yeah, like, right. Endorse, endorse Who's next? Andrew Yang in. But uh, he's a smart guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good and, guy. And once they know what the qualifications are to get on stage in the first debate, which is, you know, 1% yeah. in at least three Multiple polls. Multiple polls, yep. And the sixty-five thousand donors yep. in some twenty states, you can n- not game the system, but you focus on that. Yeah, yeah. And you build that kind of a fundraising base. And Andrew Yang says he's got it. Yeah, he and he put out a press release, and it's you know, and, and there's been a few stories about it in national outlets. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to hype up the debates too much because if you remember from 2016, they had the infamous undercard sort of kitty oh, table yeah. debates. Yeah. But it's going and to so be different. It's this. going to be different this time. Um, but that being said, just being she- having a sheer presence on a debate stage doesn't necessarily change your candidacy drastically. But it does, you know, it does give you a platform and a chance. So it is the first time that millions of Americans will see, hear, yes. Of- a Pete Buttigieg. Yes. <laughs> um, in some cases, a Julian Castro. Yes, right. right. And particularly the um, the disadvantage of the way the Republicans did it, we've talked about this, mm-hmm. is that they had the major candidates on one stage yeah. and then the minor candidates yeah. on the other. And the Democrats, the DNC is not going to do that this year. They're going to mix them up. Yeah. For mix all them kinds up of reasons. And two back to back days. And two back to back days. Yep. The network doesn't want all the stars on the first night. Yeah. They want some stars on the second night, and too. I think so that's that people good. will tune in both nights. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I think good. it's a smart. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For example, uh, <laughs> pardon me. I'd have to say, if I'm a network guy, I don't want Bernie. And Joe Biden on the same yeah. night. Yeah. You know? I don't think they want each other on the same night either. <laughs> Maybe not. But so you, you know? have one one night and then the people will tune in for, yeah. both, for both nights. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you don't want, I think, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris on, this, right. on the same night. Right. So they say yeah, it's going to mix it up. They say it's going to be at ran- random. I think they okay. should. Uh, I think it should be like random rigged. <laughs> yeah. Mean? Yeah. R- random to an extent. Right. Yeah. But, but, um, yeah, it'll be interesting a, a good, to see. A good lineup both nights. Um, and again, Andrew Yang will be in there. So. Yeah. How about Kirsten Gillibrand? So uh, she's actually polling in some polls worse than Andrew Yang, speaking of him. Um it's interesting. Isn't that amazing? It, it's she's you know she's a she's a sitting senator from one of the most important states in the country. So it's kind of perplexing that her her campaign is not um, doing as well as they hoped it, it would. It's also really weird. She hasn't officially entered the race. That's yet. right. 
Uh, and you know, I thought about this the other day. So she's she in the. Just has she's still an explore. She does, committee? and I actually thought about this the other day. I thought, um, so she's having a town hall coming up too with CNN, and so is Elizabeth Warren. And um, it's interesting. I wonder if if her if if Kirsten Gillibrand's campaign doesn't actually end up taking off in a significant way. I wonder if she can just pull the plug on it and say we've we're at, we've ended the exploratory phase and we're not running. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so I, I I don't know if that's been done in the past. I just thought that would be interesting. You know, if she if she knows that she's polling really low and it's like three months from now, say, you know, at the beginning towards the debate time, she's not entering the debate. She's still in the exploratory phase. And there's no limit, according to the FEC, on when you have to pull the plug on a, on an exploratory committee. We, we were trying well, to figure that out last week. I, I yeah, I looked if at it yesterday. Has ever no. I, I don't I don't know. But there's no limit to how long it can go on. So I think. It's, I mean, I don't know if she would ever do that. It's just theoretical that she could say, you know, but we're, the answer we've, is, we've of course, if she, if she can she's have not an getting traction. Committee, yeah, there's no obligation to run, to, to, run. to run, especially if you're not doing well. No, you know, at, at any and point. I think that's, you know, I, I do. I think um, people will look, you know, charitably at that and say, oh, I think they'll still consider her running. So I think they'll say, you know, well, she was her her campaign has ended. Well. I don't know how closely people are going to split hairs and if she had a campaign or not. Um, but I think, you know, she, that could be an avenue for her if she right. doesn't end up catching on. Uh, and at this point, with the, those that are now in, would you agree that um, Bernie Sanders is a front runner? I would agree with that. I would agree with that, just based on a, a number of factors. I mean, at this stage... Um, it's hard to say who's the front runner, you know, technically, but I think it's well, in terms of money, raised. looking at money, looking at the polls, looking at the apparatus built up, the ground roots uh, support built up, the the um, the the small donors, all of these kinds of factors that you look at in the very early stages. Now, all of that can change, but it's certainly there right now. So I think it's it's, you know, and what a difference between today and 2016. I, I when, hear you. You know, when Bernie Sanders in 2016 was like the Old Testament prophet that yeah. people thought he was saying these things that were politically untenable and we can't go that far left and boom, 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 boom. Yeah, he has a lot of things bold. going for him this time. And now basically everybody's singing out of the same songbook, right? Yeah, and I... Mean, I $15 <laughs> minimum wage, nobody would dare oppose it today. No, I mean, no, and... And I think front runner. I mean, it's you can define it a bunch of different ways. But one of the biggest things he has going for him is the party's leftward shift. And I always hear the argument from different. I hear both sides of it. I hear from a lot of Democratic strategists who don't particularly like him. I hear them say, um, "Well, there's so many people competing now, and and yeah, it's, it's shifted in his it's shifted in his direction. But because there's 12 candidates, 15 candidates." Um, nobody's going to pay attention to, to him anymore because he's not the only one touting these these you know policy ideals. Um, I'm not sure that that's true necessarily. I think that's a valid point for some people, but I think also there are a lot of people who um, appreciate his consistency on that issue. So, I mean, it's just going to be interesting to see which one prevails. Right um, uh, and at the same time, there are those who consider who are Bernie fans mm-hmm. who think of him as Moses and that his right. contribution may be uh, that he brought us to the promised land, right. but he never got there himself. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, and that, that too, yeah. <laughs> he raised the issues, he defined the, he redefined the party, gave all kinds of new energy, new new direction, yeah. right, and, and a new set of issues, and yet never Came got the short. prize himself. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. 
We'll see. I mean, we'll see which one ends up. Uh, I I always I always ask this whenever we get into twenty twenty because <laughs> it's true. All the excitement is on the Democratic side, <laughs> but what are the chances of a primary challenge to Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I think people are really talking about Larry Hogan now. Um, are they still? So, I haven't heard of Larry I, Hogan. Yeah, I get. I mean, he's he's the one that's really making it through uh, the news stories these days. I'm not sure how serious he is, but he is going to New Hampshire um, to speak at their Politics and Eggs, sort of their famous um, yeah, right. political forum. Um, so you know, I don't. That's more of a business crowd. I'm not sure how well he's going to be received there, but it's it's. Um, and that is William Weld, right? William but, Weld, yep, he's him too. Well, he's yeah. an actual. De- he's a declared candidate, yeah, I should say. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I joke. think I think people are taking Larry Hogan a little more seriously <laughs> than Bill Weld. Um, well, well, Peter lives in Montgomery County. He's the uh, chair of the Larry Hogan for. <laughs> Something like that. Hannah Trudeau, you can follow Hannah at nationaljournal.com and sign up for the newsletter. And Jordan Fabian this joins us next. Is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you know? Yesterday I agreed with Donald Trump with about something, and today I find myself agreeing with Paul Ryan and what he said about the 2020 campaign. Oh, getting worried here. <laughs> agreeing with Donald Trump and Paul Ryan two days in a row. Well, hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Wednesday, March 13. Uh, This is the Bill Press Show, and we are coming to you live from our nation's capital. With all the news of the day, there is lots happening here in Washington, around the country, and around the globe, wherever it is. We're on top of it for you and with you. We'll tell you what's going on, and um, you tell us what it all means to you. You know how to do so. On Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, history made this week when we had the uh, first uh, White House briefing in 42 days uh, and covering the White House for the Hill. Our good friend Jordan Fabian. Jordan, you know, w- remarkable that Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out of hiding with the new budget. Yes. What an occasion. Uh, the daily briefing now is the uh, the bi-monthly briefing. So. <laughs> right. Uh, it, yeah, last year it was the monthly. It became the monthly briefing. Now it's the bi-monthly. Yeah. Right, and uh, I, I, you know, there's. I think after Bill Shine left, there's been a lot of speculation about whether these briefings are going to come back, and we'll have to see if the next person in line does it. But I have my doubts. There, there are reasons other than Bill Shine. The briefing was beginning to go away yeah. in the middle of last year, and uh, I don't think those reasons have changed. Right. So Jordan's with us for this next half hour to talk about all things White House. We'll be joined by Molly O'Toole from the Los Angeles Times to talk on the immigration front and whatever happened to the caravans. 
uh, here in this hour. Good to have you with us again. Look forward to your comments on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. I guess you could call this an end of an era, Bill. Yesterday, attorney Michael Avenatti announced that he is no longer representing Stormy Daniels. How sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a match made in heaven. And remember, there was a time we thought this could actually be the thing to bring down Donald Trump. Uh, Well, they are separating. He says, quote, for various reasons that we cannot disclose publicly due to the attorney client privilege, we are terminating our representation of Stormy Daniels. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. What if he got paid? It's a good question, actually. Um, Stormy Daniels announced on her own that she has retained another uh, attorney, a guy by the name of Clark Brewster, and says that he's going to be reviewing and handling all legal matters involving me, uh, is the statement that she put out. So, um, We'll see what happens with her fight against Donald Trump. Uh, let's go to Minnesota because I don't know if you realize this. This is a trend that is very scary. Employers can ask employees for their passwords to their social media site. No. It's true. No. This, this is a thing that's happening around the country. So an employer can go to an employee and say, I want the password to your Facebook account or your Twitter account. How can they, on what grounds can they ask that? Well, I, that will, that, this is the question that's in Minnesota because a lawmaker has introduced a new uh, piece of legislation to make it illegal for lawmakers to ask for that type of information. It is legal to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so now they're saying they want to specifically make sure, make it very clear, you cannot do this. You cannot do this. It would be illegal to ask your employees for that information. If anybody asked for mine, I wouldn't give it to them. No, of course not. First of all, I probably couldn't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they'd have to ask me to get your social media stuff, right? And look, when you asked me for all of my social media stuff, I said, hell no. Right, as you should. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, And one final story very, very quickly. In Florida, a very serious accident. A truck overturned and it spilled 8,000 bottles of ranch dressing onto the highway. Jeez. Oh, yes, of course. This is a very Can Florida story. Slipping and sliding in that. No thanks. <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. Hey, you want to get your kid into college? It's not so tough after all. As long as you're willing to shell out enough money. That's the latest big scandal. It's not a political scandal for once, a college admission scandal that's rocking the country. Hey, hello, everybody. 50 people charged yesterday. It is Wednesday, March 13. So good to see you today. Uh, We welcome you to the program. It's the Bill Press Show. That's me, and we're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., all across this great land of ours on the radio, on television, and online with all the news of the day. Uh, thank you for being there, and uh, join me in welcoming good, our good friend from the White House, covering the White House for The Hill, uh, not on the White House staff at all, covering the White House for The Hill, great newspaper, The Hill, thehill.com. Jordan Fabian. Jordan, it's good to see you. You too, Bill. So uh, it's interesting. The uh, president found a way to save a lot of time this week, right, by shortening people's names. Uh, yeah, the, 0.4 seconds maybe. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so much. It takes so much time to say Tim Cook, right? Yeah, just a mouthful. I know it is. <laughs> Tim Cook of Apple, right? right? That's so long, right? That was why. Why did the president make such a big deal over that? I mean, we all slip and say stupid things sometimes, right? right. Yeah, it, he it, couldn't accept it. No, it, or admit it. This this president, obviously, we we know he he doesn't tell the truth a lot of the time, and, and sometimes it's about big things, and other times it's about very small things, and it's it, I, it's hard to get into his mind. But this is something that happened last week. I think a lot of people ended up forgetting about it, and then Monday morning he he makes his tweet and then it injects it back into the bloodstream of the uh, of the news media, even though that everybody had moved on. Right. Uh, speaking of tweets, this morning, Peter, if we can re- retrieve that. Um, uh, so I had made the point, was in the middle of making the point, uh, that Paul Ryan yesterday in Vero Beach, Florida, said, I've got the exact, I don't want to mis- misquote him, the exact quote of Paul Ryan, the person who defines that race in 2020 is going to win the race, who defines the race is going to win the race. If this is about, Ryan continues, if this is about Donald Trump and his personality, he isn't going to win it. Um, The point I was making was it will be about Donald Trump because that's all Donald Trump talks about, that every rally is about him, every tweet is about him. I'm the best president. I'm the most successful president, all of that. We've heard it so many times. And then in the middle, while I'm talking, Peter, pop, the, a tweet pops up. Yeah. Peter, here it is. I'm sure you saw it earlier, Jordan, but get your comment on it. Donald Trump on Twitter. I greatly appreciate Nancy Pelosi's statement against impeachment, but everyone must remember the minor fact that I never did anything wrong. The economy and unemployment are the best ever. Military and vets are great and, and many other successes. How do you impeach a man who was considered by many to be the president with the most successful first two years in history, especially when he has done nothing wrong and impeachment is for high crimes and misdemeanors? Oh, when you put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But it is a constant theme of his that I have succeeded beyond any other president in, in history. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the, he said this about many things he's done. The tax bill—it says it's the largest tax cut in history. It's not, uh, again, uh, an established record of telling things that are, uh, in some cases, easily disprovably false. Uh, that being said, I, I'm not sure I disagree. I'm not sure I agree actually with with, with, with Ryan. Paul Ryan. Uh, I think it's very clear this race in 2020 is going to be about Donald Trump. He is. Uh, you know, for all of his flaws, able to really suck up all of the oxygen in the race. And we saw totally. uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and 16 other Republican primary candidates just completely unable to parry him in 2016. And uh, while the race right now is in a very early stage, I'm not convinced that the top tier of Democratic candidates are going to be able to find a way to effectively counter President Trump. Uh, it hasn't been proven to have been done yet. And a lot of these folks are, uh, I would say, you know, maybe new to the national stage, uh, entering a, a huge race with a lot of expectations that they're going to unseat this president. And uh, you know, again, this is, it's going to be a long race. They'll have multiple chances to prove they can do it, but uh, I'm not sure it's going to be that easy. Are they concerned about impeachment at the White House? Uh, certainly, I think they're concerned. Uh, they've brought up, they've brought in 17 
new lawyers to the White House Counsel's Office. Really? Whoa. Yes, just to handle these investigations. And I think the sense is that even what? right now, Nancy Pelosi is saying impeachment, we don't want to do it. But a lot of people in, in Trump's world and in the White House view this as kind of laying the groundwork for impeachment, putting out into the public all these things that the president is alleged to have done. And then eventually at some point, uh, perhaps after the Mueller report comes out, depending on what it says, moving forward with some kind of impeachment. Right. Uh, and in addition to the, the Mueller report, the possibility and the possibility is you've got these oversight hearings in the House that that they didn't have to deal with any of those in the last two years. Right. So right. that's why they need this new team of lawyers. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I should be clear on that. The, the lawyers were brought in uh, for the oversight investigations, the Judiciary yeah. Committee investigations. But, you know, impeachment is is a political decision, and this is a decision right. that will be made by, you know, a Democratic majority in the House. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also think that if you read between the lines in Speaker Pelosi's statement that I'm against impeachment, we should not be going there, uh, and um, uh, that there's always the possibility that if Robert Mueller comes up with an explosive report, they're going to say, we're bound to uh, proceed with impeachment hearings. And as you point out, the oversight hearings will have already laid the foundation for that. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, Bill. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's comments got a lot of attention this week. But if you read them closely, it's it's pretty much what she's been saying all along, which is, I don't really want to go for impeachment, but if the evidence says we should do it, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, still leaving the door open to impeachment, uh, whereas I think the initial reaction to those comments were she's shutting the door. Uh, I don't, right. I didn't see it that way at all. You mentioned uh, Bill Shine a little earlier. Um, Bill Shine was he booted out or did he decide to leave? Bill Shine, uh, by all accounts and from what I've heard from, in my reporting, was was essentially pushed out. Uh, he. You know, wasn't fired. You know, we rarely see that yeah. directly happen in, in, in with Trump. But uh, you know, the president for a long time had been unhappy with the media coverage he was getting, and he was blaming that on Bill Shine, even though any communications director is only going to have so much control over mm-hmm. what kind of media coverage the president is getting. Particularly when you have uh, a, a president who like out of control and dealing, ma- making tweeting and making statements all the time, right? Absolutely, yeah, the, yeah, so, exactly. A lot of these headlines are, but, yeah. You know, I don't think the president quite understands that a lot of the stuff is linked to his actions. Um, and anyway, the the situation didn't, uh, you know, became kind of untenable, and and he was you know, now shuffled off to the campaign where he's going to be you know, a quote unquote senior advisor, Some but vague role, right? Right, and and we've seen in the past, uh, pr- you know, former White House officials kind of get warehoused at at super PACs or mm-hmm. the campaign just to kind of have a soft landing after they leave the White House. It, it remains to be seen whether you know Bill Shine has that kind of job or is going to have a lot of responsibilities with the campaign. Right. Um, the latest, um, there have been a flood of books about the Trump administration, <clears throat> including one of mine, Trump Must Go, last October. Um, the latest is a book that comes out, I think, this week, maybe from St. Martin's Press, uh, my publisher, uh, about Ivanka and Jared, um, and th- th- saying that, well, first of all, it reinforces what we were reporting on a week or so ago, that Donald Trump personally intervened to get a security clearance for both Ivanka and Jared. And secondly, 
that their role in the White House is um, is pretty significant. Um, but at the same time, at one time, the book claims that Donald Trump actually told John Kelly <laughs> to get rid of Ivanka and Jared. What can we believe about any of that? Right. I mean, what a wild story. And yeah. I, you know, I don't I haven't seen other places match that. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's true. But uh, I would say that it would fit into this pattern of behavior by the president, somebody who, you know, for all of his public bluster about you know, you're fired and what you're wanting to get rid of people is very averse to interpersonal conflict on on the on the personal level. And, uh, you know, we've seen him before. We've heard stories about him before directing John Kelly or or Ryan's Priebus or somebody to to try to get rid of somebody else in his orbit because he just doesn't want them around anymore, but he can't bring himself to do the firing. Right. But I mean, for, to, for your daughter, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And your it's remarkable. Son-in-law, if that is true. And and, he, and keep in mind, John Kelly is not somebody who you know the president has had a long personal relationship with. This is somebody who only he only really met during the transition. So in 2017. So he's telling someone he barely knows, maybe knows known for a year or so yeah, to, point, to, right. to get his his, do- his own daughter and, and son-in-law out of, out of the White House. It's quite something. What is their role in the White House? It's a great question. Uh, the, Javanka. Right. So. I mean, they have, their, they have their pet issues. I mean, Ivanka does a lot of workforce development stuff. Jared had the, the criminal justice reform and, right. and the Israeli-Palestinian and, conflict and, and China and Mexico. Peace and, in the Middle East. Yada, yada, and, yada, yada. Yeah, you right. name it. Right. I, exactly. So the, and the list goes on. I, you know, I, I would say that Jared uh, kind of strengthened his hand after John Kelly left. But as as we've seen in the past with this White House, you know, aides go up and down. Uh, that that also applies, I think, to the president's children, although they seem at this point to be the constant. And, and uh, you know, despite what this book is reporting, I don't see them going anywhere unless they want to. Uh, whereas the staff, the, the other people around the president, have proven to be disposable. Right. Um, the briefing on Monday was it Monday? I guess it was Monday, Monday or Tuesday. Monday, I guess, huh? Um, the first one in forty-two days, as we've mentioned several times, really focused on two issues. It started out with the acting budget director, again another acting person around the White House. Uh, Russell Vaught, who uh, presented the president's budget, which everybody sort of agrees that the president's budget, no matter who the president is, is not what Congress just takes up and acts on. They do their own thing. But what's significant about, and a couple of people pushed this, particularly starting with John Carl from ABC, is that this budget projects a deficit, a national debt of 22, actually it's more than $22.8 trillion by 2025, from a president who promised he was going to wipe out the debt in eight years. Yeah, it's but uh, they don't, but they don't seem to doesn't seem to matter anymore. No, and if, this is one of the ways I think you, the President Trump, somebody who's not a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, doesn't come from that movement is is changing the Republican Party, where it's really become a party that is uh, you know adheres to Trump is really the number one principle. Uh, you know, that is something that we heard about a lot about during the Obama administration. Uh, the, the, you know, we had the fiscal cliff. We had the debt ceiling debate. Oh yeah, we had yeah. all these these uh, real real crises, <laughs> self inflicted in some ways over you know the pre- the Republican the Congressional Republican Party's insistence that debt deficits were out of control. Can't raise the debt ceiling. Yes. You know, the whole thing. And all, all of a sudden, big... those those concerns are are out the window. Right. I mean, I, I don't know of one 
voice, fiscal hawk voice now in the Congress. I mean, Bob Corcoran, Bob Corker rather, was, but then he still voted for the for, for the Trump tax cuts and everything, which added to the national debt. Um, but there used to be a whole chorus, particularly of conservative Republicans, whose who fiscal responsibility was their whole thing. I, seriously, I, Democrat or Republican, I don't know anybody who who's complaining about this today. No, no, it's. Uh, I mean, I think you you hear some whispers from some conservative groups in town, but as far as having a standard bearer in the Congress or somebody who's really pushing this issue, issue forward, that person doesn't really exist right now. So, in the context of that budget, the other big issue was eight point six uh, billion for the for the wall. Do, does the president really believe that? Unable to, you can have a shut down the government for thirty five days and not get seven billion for the wall. Then now he can get eight point six in his budget. I guess we'll see on September in September when when the budget deadline comes up again. If if this request is going to turn into another shutdown stalemate, I, I I don't know. It's it's hard to say, and it's hard to say. And I think we'll have to see how you know this national emergency goes. Whether there's enough progress on the wall being made through that for, to satisfy the president. And if he's not satisfied, is he going to take drastic measures again to try to get the wall built? He is facing a vote tomorrow. Uh, Peter, we have Mitch McConnell, who actually uh, yesterday uh, acknowledged that even though he might like to, he's not able to um, prevent this resolution nullifying the emergency declaration from coming up for a vote in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell yesterday. The use of the national emergency law has generated a good deal of discussion. Yeah, and no kidding. we'll continue having those discussions. But it'll all come to a head on Thursday. <clears throat> the clock runs, and the vote will occur on Thursday. Uh, and he's basically admitting that it's going to pass the Senate as it passed the House, right? We'll see, though. Uh, one, our colleagues at the Hill reported yesterday that Vice President Pence went into a meeting with Senate Republicans and floated a compromise, basically that the president would sign legislation limiting his authority to declare future national emergencies in exchange for their votes uh, against this resolution of disapproval of the border emergency. Now, whether Senate Republicans take that offer, we'll see. But, uh, you know, as we've seen, you know, Senate Republicans sometimes will will talk a big game about trying to counter uh, the president and not step up to the plate. Absolutely. So, again, I yeah. I, I don't think that the, the, the passage is a foregone conclusion in the Senate. Well, it's there's a lot of negotiations happening behind the scenes right now. Right. Um, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders mentioned that yesterday. We're talking to people all the time. Uh, but if they get, but they only need four Republicans too. Right. Uh, by name, they have four, although one of them is Rand Paul, who is a classic one for talking tough and then ending up folding at the end, right? So uh, I wouldn't count on Rand Paul either. But there's no doubt, if it does pass the, the, the Senate, Donald Trump exercises his first veto. That's right. That's yeah. right. And then where do they go? I, there's not much they can do because, you know, especially if they're offering some kind of compromise – um, and even regardless if they don't, th- there's not a two-thirds majority in, in both chambers to overturn the veto. And, and the political calculation for you know, overturning a president's veto, especially for Republicans, is different than passing a resolution saying you disapprove of something. So yeah. uh, 
I think at that point, Congress will have exhausted all of its powers. That being said, there's a lot of lawsuits ongoing against this national emergency. And so it's possible that the courts will take some action in the coming weeks and months to, to block this in some capacity. So back to the briefing, um, once the, the uh, acting budget director left, most of the questions uh, were to, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders trying to, to get some clarification on a statement that the president made last weekend at Mar-a-Lago that the Democrats hate the Jewish people. Right. Um, and she was pressed, is that, can, is that true, yes or no? Is that what Donald Trump believes? Would not answer that question. You've reported now that the American, uh, the Anti-Defamation League has stepped into this now. Where is this whole? Yeah, I mean, it's super, it's super interesting, and it's very uh, disconcerting for a lot of Jewish groups. Uh, the, I think the president and some people around him believe that this whole kerfuffle over Ilhan Omar and this controversy over anti-Semitism is going to drive Jewish voters out of the Democratic Party and toward Donald Trump. Uh, that is, uh, I would say, a, a very hopeful <laughs> conclusion, given that you've had for the past 25 years, I think 70 percent of, of Jews identify as Democrats. You've had about that number vote for a Democratic presidential candidate in every presidential election for that amount of time. Yeah. And, and I saw it was actually 75 percent, I think, in the 2018 midterms. Yeah. And 70 percent right. for Hillary in 2016. Right. So you have that that number going in the opposite direction of what they want it to. Uh, but that being said, you, uh, Trump is trying to use this as a wedge issue. But um, for groups like the Anti-Defamation League and APAC, uh, their whole mission for for years has been to make issues like the like Israel and anti-Semitism bipartisan. So when one uh, leader in a party is trying to make it into a partisan issue, uh, that's going to bother them. And, uh, and that's what you're seeing happen with the president's repeated statements on, on this issue. Right. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the head of the ADL yesterday, as you reported, uh, tweeted out, when anti-Semitism is repeatedly politicized, it not only hurts the Jewish community, it fosters division. At a time when anti-Semitism is rising, we need leaders to lead and fight hate rather than point fingers and cast blame. What they're saying is don't make this a political issue right. or a political football or a wedge issue. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and, and, and then you have – because it, it is – I mean, Greenblatt has a point. This is getting into – to become you know quite a messy fight because you have you know, Trump saying that Democrats hate Jews and then you have Democrats, excuse me, dredging up the comments he made about Charlottesville and, and the um, – the image he used during the 2016 campaign with the Jewish star with Hillary Clinton and then his comments before the Republican Jewish committee where he called Jewish donors negotiators who weren't going to support him anyway because they want to control their politicians with money, uh, which was yeah, – Which know, is kind of the same thing that Elon Omar said. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, so this – a lot of mudslinging here, uh, a lot of – it's a very sensitive issue for, for Jewish people, understandably, and, uh, and, and so – that that was the the point that Jonathan Greenblatt was making that this is this is getting very messy and they want to dial this back. Now, one of the most bizarre stories, and there have been a lot of them, came up this week, uh, White House related. Your beat um, through Mother Jones reporting on a. This ties back to the Robert Kraft 
being uh, charged with uh, illicit sex acts at this Asian spa in um, uh, down in Florida. Uh, and it turns out the woman who owned at once owned that spa was a pretty regular at Mar-a-Lago, bringing Chinese businessmen there to uh, enjoy Mar-a-Lago and maybe even have an encounter with the president of the United States. Uh, have you looked into this? Where is this going? If anywhere. I, I mean, look, I think it's another, yet another thread where the president can attract whether it's lawmakers or, or prosecutors or whatever. I mean, you know, there, I think that Mother Jones article, at least one of them was insinuating that she was some kind of asset for Chinese intelligence. Well, right. So, the first story, which was she had this business in addition to owning the spa at that time. She owns other spas, but no longer owns that one. That in addition to her business for uh, ex- providing access to Mar-a-Lago for Chinese businessmen. She had another business which was directly related to the Chinese government so that she might be a- operating as a as an agent of the Chinese government. Right. So th- I'm sure that's going to be on the radar of of, of uh, lawmakers or, or whoever is, is going to be interested in that. And, and, and Bill, it also goes to show how little we know about what is going on at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, we found this out because there was pictures on social media mm-hmm. of her posing with Don Jr. and Eric and a lot of well-known people from the conservative media universe who hang out at Mar-a-Lago. But there are no visitor records. We're not, you know, when we go down there as, as the media, we're not allowed in willy-nilly to see, you know, who's hanging out with the president. It's it, it has to be done through, you know, this kind of reporting and. Look, I, I think you're this not is even a, allowed. I mean, you're not allowed inside the club, are you? Unless there's an uh, event where the president is. Unless we're invited in by the president, like you yeah. said. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we can't just go into. It's a private club. But this is the this is the thing. If there's official business or whatever else being con- conducted at the president's private club, that's that's a that's been a long been a concern. I know of ethics uh, watchdogs and, and folks like that. And this is maybe one of the most stunning examples of how. That this Mar-a-Lago situation is, is uh, you know, creating this weird sort of dynamic, this uh, you know, kind of dark corner where the president might be able to be, do business outside of the the view of the public. I mean, it, it that's a whole area that's that's just inviting, right? Some good investigative reporting. I I have a friend who um, either he's a member or he's a friend of a member who Trump is going to Mar-a-Lago, he's in West Palm and he's at Mar-a-Lago and he often ends up having a conversation with Donald Trump and he goes down there deliberately for that purpose because he knows if you're hanging out there in the dining room, right, you have a chance to encounter the president of the United States and engage him in conversation. Yeah, and, and, but yeah, this is now, not, I'm, and I'm, these are people. And that's not report, I mean, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what they're talking about. But right. Those are opportunities that are. And these are paying, people who are paying hundreds of exactly. thousands of dollars for that privilege. Yeah. And so it's a. What's it, 200 grand to join? Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, you know, that, that's, it's a very odd dynamic and it's something that we haven't really seen before. And hey, Bill, your, your friend's holding out on you. He's got to get you down there so you can get a... <laughs> that, was my thought. that was my yeah. thought. We're going to do a live broadcast from Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Let's get it down there. Let's make it happen. <laughs> well, you planted a, a seed there. Maybe I will. Yeah, get after it. <laughs> and I'll, I'll make sure I do it when you're down there pooling. Yes, right? thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah just swing by and, and do the show with us, Jordan, while we're down there. That would be great. Yeah. 
All right, now, um, as long as he's a member, not me, 200 grand, I'm not going to pay. I, first of all, I don't have it. Secondly, right. secondly uh, I wouldn't pay it. I'll let you know how that goes, Jordan. Sounds okay. good. What's up today? Well, he's got uh, another immigration event this afternoon where he's opening up to the press. So I assume we might hear more about this border wall request for $8.6 billion and uh And then, uh, honestly, a lot of us are looking for developments in the Mueller case. Uh, there's a lot of... Court activity with Manafort and Flynn this week, Roger yeah. Stone as well. And then also uh, what's happening with China and this trade deal. There's been a lot of talk about a possible summit with President Xi by the end of the month, but uh, there's some indications that's not going so well. So uh, we're also looking for that too. Right. On the Manafort deal, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the other day, he'll, he'll, he'll make that decision when he's ready, right? It was sort of indicated he'll announce it when he's ready. He's already made it. it sounded like that to me. but Possibly. Right. I mean, oh, oh, the president, uh, you know, the, the terrorists are supposed to go back into place March 1st. He delayed it. Uh, Robert Lighthizer, the trade representative, was was before Congress yesterday, and he did not sound too optimistic about a deal. That being said, I, I think the only person we, we could really trust on this is the president himself. Right. And he's been he sounded a little more positive himself in the last few days. So uh, I, I should have asked you. Uh, but so before we let you go, I will. Um the United States, one of the only countries on the planet now that's still flying the uh, Supermax 737. Correct. And the president made some bizarre comments yesterday about planes getting too complicated for pilots these days and kind of almost let's go back to the Bright Brothers or something, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he's he's standing up for Boeing in this case. And they must be getting a lot of pressure to say, hey, just for the safety of the American people, we ought to ground these planes until we know they're safe. Yeah, and look, the CEO of Boeing has really tried to cozy up to the president over the past couple of years. There was the mm-hmm. blow up over the Air Force new Air Force One contract, you remember, at the beginning of the presidency. Right. And so the, the CEO and top executives were meeting with the president. And Boeing, I think, kicked in a million dollars to the president's inaugural committee. Uh, so there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of ties there. So it's an interesting question for the Trump administration where you have you know these safety concerns but competing with you know, commerce and having the airlines, you know, run on time and also the president's personal interest in, in Boeing as a company. Right. And just having sold 110 of these or signed a deal where Vietnam would buy 110 of them. Right. You know, and so grounding them would kind of undercut that Trump deal. Certainly. Don't know what well, will be interesting to watch down there today. If there's any action on that front as well. So we'll uh, we'll let you get back to work. Jordan Fabian from The Hill, thehill.com. Don't forget The Hill. Best source, I always tell you, for knowing what's going on in Washington, either uh, in the Congress, at The Hill, uh, on The Hill, down at the White House, or the agencies as well. And, of course, you can catch my column in The Hill on Tuesdays. Molly O'Toole joins us from uh, the Los Angeles Times next to talk the latest on immigration issues. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thank you again, Jordan. Thanks, Bill. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. On a Wednesday, March 13, hello, friends and neighbors. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much for being part of the program today as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day. And we're brought to you today by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, those good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families. 
uh, at their re- great retail grocery chains across the country. Check out their website at ufcw.org. And we welcome uh, to the program, wrapping up here on a Wednesday, to talk particularly immigration, homeland security issues, Molly O'Toole, who covers those issues for the great Los Angeles Times. Molly, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Wearing a new hat at Los Angeles Times. Yes, A new exactly. hat for us at, uh, at any rate. Virtual hat. Uh, right, there are so many ways we could start this conversation, but let's start with yesterday, uh, the House of Representatives uh, introducing H.R. 6, mm-hmm. uh, the so-called Dream and Promise Act. Um, Congresswoman Lucille Royball Allard is the chief sponsor uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, joining her to introduce the bill yesterday and stressing uh, its importance to the Democratic agenda. Let's recognize that in the election, the American people elected a new Democratic House majority that would advance progress for all Americans and uphold our values of liberty, justice, and opportunity. Uh, and this is part of that agenda. Um, so is this the dreamer the Dreamers program coming back under a different form? It's sort of Dreamers Plus um, uh-huh. because it also includes, for example, temporary, pro- excuse me, it also yeah. includes, for example, some of the uh, the t- TPS recipients, the temporary protected status. Uh, so I think I've seen different estimates, but I think the bill will cover something from, so if you take the Dreamers, which I think are a little over a million, and then you take, you know, almost 300,000 uh, or more than 300,000, excuse me, TPS recipients. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a bill that could potentially cover, you know, well over a million people in order to give them a sort of regularized status, permanently relieve them of the fear of, of removal, of deportation, you know, I think give them a path to permanent legal status, potentially citizenship in the U.S. So it has a lot of that similar, uh, as- it, it resembles the DREAM Act uh, of uh, 2012, I think. Um, right. But it's uh, it's Dreamer Plus. Dreamer, Dreamer Plus. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the million you mentioned for the Dreamers does not include those potential Dreamers, right, who right. who might qualify but haven't yet signed up for the program. Right. 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 So, uh, but this is a bill or bills similar to this have either been proposed or passed in the House. Not a prayer of getting through the Senate, Right. No, I think, I mean, obviously this has been a priority. It's just not a reason not to do it. Right. This is obviously, this has been a priority for the Democrats. It's a political priority for them. It's a a principled priority for them. Uh, But you have to sort of uh, cynically look, take the political calculation and, you know, potentially on when it comes to immigration, the chambers and the parties are potentially further apart than they have been in years. So it, it doesn't look likely that there's a path for it to move forward. Uh, it's sort of the reverse of the, the previous situation in which the Senate passed the bill and the House did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so now we have the House who would be likely to pass the bill at least on a party line, a party line vote and the Senate probably not a chance in hell. Does it include citizenship? I think that, that it ultimately includes a path to citizenship. Um, and it may go a little further there um, than uh, than previous. Um, and also, you have to remember, in order to pass the Senate, uh, the previous dream legislation uh, included um, also a lot of border security measures, a lot of funding for border security. Um, and this really focuses on the immigration piece of it. I mean, you have seen President Trump, for example, when he sort of unveiled his big it was a Saturday Oval Office speech, and he unveiled his big 
uh, compromise. And this was ahead of the shutdown is oh, when, oh, right. when yeah. they were in negotiations. And he in, said that his big compromise was was uh, it, it had some provisions for TPS. It had some provisions for Dreamers. Um, in many ways, it simply restored programs that he had cut already um, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or claims that it would extend TPS uh, for certain populations that they had ended it for. So Democrats sort of rightly said, is this really a compromise? Um, but he has said in the past that he he's sort of been back and forth, but that he would be open to a resolution for Dreamers, uh, open to a resolution for TPS. We should also note that in many ways they've tried to end TPS for El Salvadorans, for example, uh, I believe Sudanese. Um, and many of those populations, the ending of that t- program has been blocked by the courts, actually. Yeah. So, uh, but he has said in the past, he has expressed some indication that he would support this sort of thing, but there would be no support for this bill. It wouldn't pass the Senate. No, the reason I ask about citizenship is because I know that's one of the main arguments that Republicans have made against um, giving any kind of uh, recognition to the Dreamers program is that this is just, Democrats are just using this to get more Democratic voters signed up so they can, you know, win more congressional seats, right? right. With Latino votes, right. right? That is the argument. But then when you hear, when you, in the, especially in the debate over the national emergency, it's the debate over sort of assumes, by the way, that that every single Latino is going to register as a Democrat, right? And we know that overwhelmingly, it's not the case. It's not the case. We do know that overwhelmingly, uh, Latino voters tend to favor the Democratic Party. But what's been really interesting about Donald Trump is he actually got a fairly significant, at least relative to other Republican presidential candidates. Uh, people were surprised at how much Hispanic support he's he got. And obviously, polls are polls, but there's some indication that he's he's kept a fairly high level of support among Hispanic voters, and I mean high relative to <laughs> relative to other Republican candidates. So we're still talking far lower than Democratic support, but people have been surprised to the degree to which he's he's garnered Hispanic support. Well, uh, I've been active long enough in politics, particularly in California, when the Latino vote was a Republican vote. I mean, we had a hard time as a Democrat Democratic Party in California in voter registration drives uh, to attract enough Democrats until... Pete Wilson, then governor, put Prop 187 on the ballot, and um, and and basically declared war against the Latino community, and that's what the Republican Party has done consistently ever since. Right. right? Well, we had the the autopsy report. And so they for have example. turned. Yeah. They have turned the Hispanic community kind of against them because of so much anti-immigration. Right. And, and, and measure, I think so many measures, I think looking back, one of the most interesting documents to me is the GOP autopsy report. Right. Uh, in which they said, yes. we, we need to stop with this rhetoric, this sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric. Not only that, we have to lead in immigration reform. Exactly. We have to lead in immigration reform. Lindsey Graham, the mm-hmm. par- Republican Party will be in a death spiral. Right. He said then. Right. He wouldn't say that today, but. But I also think it's clearly they did not go that way. Clearly they went the other way. But yep. I also think what's interesting is, you know, there were ahead of the 2016 election, there were sort of all of these indications that uh, voter registration drives, people who uh, potentially uh, could become naturalized but just sort of had never gotten around to it, that there was this big push in response to Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric. And in the end, we didn't really see that reflected in the polling. We didn't really see it reflected in the in people who came out. Um, so I think the question is, will this be the election? Will 2020 be the election where the Hispanic community, where Latino voters 
really mobilize and come out strongly against President Trump. I mean, I think it's too soon to tell. Um, but it was interesting in the same way that the autopsy report that the Republican Party went so far the other direction from what was recommended. I think it was also interesting that people's expectations weren't quite met when it came to this Hispanic mobilization against this anti-immigrant rhetoric we were hearing from President right. Trump. All right. Now, I want to ask you about a word that I haven't heard for a long time. Uh-oh. And it was once considered the most serious threat facing this country. All right. Here's the word. Caravan. Caravan. Right. Whatever happened to it? <laughs> I mean, seriously. We well, were, the whole... the People whole... were living in fear. They were going into right. underground shelters, right? And whatever. Right. Because the caravan was coming. And suddenly, poof, freaking caravan disappears. Right. I mean, immigration, it, it tends to follow these seasonal patterns. Um, so also when people, you have to sort of constantly keep it in context. It doesn't always follow the seasonal patterns. But for example, in the spring, immigration tends to uh, tick up because it's in response to labor demands primarily from the American agricultural sector, which, yes, there's less uh, now of that, that the borders become more militarized, essentially, um, that border security has become much more heightened. There's not as much sort of back and forth to meet agricultural demands. It's still the case that in the spring, numbers tend to tick up. So, for example, in February, uh, it was a record month in some ways uh, when you're talking about immigration, um, they apprehensions, for example, uh, for a single month, they were the highest that they've been in a decade. Mm-hmm. But some people are also looking at, OK, is this part of this sort of seasonal uptick that we tend to see? It's also true the last six months have been very high uh, for apprehension numbers uh, and record numbers of families, record numbers of asylum seekers. But then you look at compared to the 90s and the 2000s and you're talking about, you know, one point six million Versus 500,000 apprehensions. But I want to specifically, what happened to these mobs of people right. who are heading for our border? I mean, did they fall in you know a hole in Mexico and never make it to the border? Where so the hell been, are they? There's been what some, happened to them? Right. There's been some. And rep- by the way, you know, they're all criminals and drug dealers and rapists right. and murderers, right? I mean, yeah, we know that. Yeah. Um, Clearly not the case. Um, so there was the November caravan, right, that we had that uh, right around... Uh, that many people said this is a pretty clear-cut example in which um, the Trump administration is using the military politically because he says, we're right. sending our military, they're not going to yeah. get across. This yeah. is right yeah. before the midterms. And then right. there had actually been one previously in the spring that got that he really brought a lot of attention to, and that start, sort of started getting people paying attention to these caravans. Now, caravans, I use that in quote because this is a phenomenon that has been happening annually in from... Central Americans primarily coming up from Mexico. It happened every year. And in most of the time, actually, it was to try and get media attention to the plight of migrants, to the plight of people in Central America. Nobody paid any attention. So, in fact, the president paying attention to the caravan in the spring is sort of what really got it became this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And, and, we what, have, and what yeah. they wanted, maybe, I guess, huh? Right. In, in a way, but uh, obviously that's a double-edged sword, that media attention, sure. um, I think, as we all know from the president's Twitter account. Uh, then we have the November, um, which was a fairly sizable amount of people. Many of them got sort of stuck in Tijuana, um, according to authorities that they think, you know, uh, uh, not an insignificant amount probably attempted to cross the border illegally because we know that there's metering going on at ports of entry, which means that if you're an asylum seeker, 
you're not crossing illegally. You are presenting yourself. You're claiming asylum. That is mm -hmm. a legal means of entering the United States. But what's mm -hmm. happening is they're doing metering at ports of entry. They're minimizing the amount of people that they will actually process, essentially making Mexico into this international waiting room. So authorities say that we've got a significant part of the caravan that probably attempted to cross illegally. You have some of them that crossed in the United States, wait, waited long enough for this to eventually happen. And you have a lot of them who sort of got stuck in Tijuana, got humanitarian visas or work visas, and have essentially decided to sort of make their life in Mexico. Uh, and similarly for the other caravans that have come along, I think there was a, a fairly large one from Honduras, uh, was much the same. A lot of them ended up in Tijuana. Some of them ended up in Texas. Um, but because they're effectively being more or less blocked at the border, a lot of them have sort of become stuck uh, or decided to make their lives in northern Mexico border cities. And there's a lot of tension there with Mexican border communities as well. Right. Uh, outside the ports of entry and those people coming uh, and legally, as you point out, seeking asylum, um, what is the flow that... Um, uh, for, of illegal crossings. Well, that's really interesting as well because we have there is an uptick in illegal crossings. Essentially, we use uh, the most commonly used measure of illegal immigration is apprehensions, um, which tends to refer to people who cross between ports of entry or people who are sort of caught. Right. Okay. Uh, and it and it usually does not necessarily include people, for example, who cross and turn themselves in. For asylum, right? Yeah, they cross between a ports of between ports of entry, turn themselves in to claim asylum. That would be con generally categorized as an apprehension. They're considered inadmissible if they come to a port of entry and they don't essentially have a travel document to get in the United States. So the administration kind of lumps these together to make it look like illegal immigration is. So even are they bigger. up or down? So they're up. Um, February was our, like I said, it was the highest month uh, in about a decade um, for apprehensions. I think it was sixty-six thousand. Um, which is significant, but there are some, there's some indication that because they're preventing people, they're encouraging people to go to ports of entry. There's some indication that because they're preventing people from entering through a port of entry, from going sort of the legal official way, that it is actually encouraging more people to cross between ports mm. of entry, which would inflate your illegal border crosser uh, statistics. Um so numbers are elevated, but there's a lot of factors, including some of the Trump administration's own policies, that may be contributing to an elevated number. Now, it statistically helps them justify their case um, for why uh, they say that there's a crisis at the border. If you have elevated numbers, it's sort of giving them that case. At the same time, it's severely undermining their case that their strategy to reduce illegal immigration is working. It's two mm -hmm. years in. You've got now had about six months of elevated numbers. Uh, so it's a really, it's sort of a difficult argument to make that there's a crisis at the border, so we need all these resources, but our policies to reduce illegal immigration are definitely working. So when the president says now, uh, finish the wall, don't build the wall, right? right? Because, because he says we've built so much new wall under the uh, over the under the last two years under his uh, administration, the Trump administration has not built a single new mile of linear wall. So not a single new mile. So two years in, despite all the promises, executive orders, all the money that's gone toward it, all the uh, the government shutdowns, et cetera, not a single new mile has been built 
under the Trump administration. Now, there have been some replacement projects, for example, but 694 miles that stand on the border today of either sort of first line fencing, second line fencing that was all built on or funded under Trump's predecessors. Interestingly, actually, most of it was built under the Obama administration. Under the Obama administration, yeah. Right. And so now they want, in the latest budget request, they want another, they say they want essentially, I think, $8 billion. 8.6. Right, 8.6 for another 700 miles of border wall is sort of the number that they've thrown around. Where would that 700 miles go? It's In the Secure Fences Act, which is 2006, it mandated 700 miles on the border. We have 694. That's essentially what border authorities at the time said was actionable, feasible, Practical, based on you know um, sort of natural uh, so, so, barriers. Sorry, we have there's 694 miles mm-hmm. already with some kind of a border wall. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's under that budget act. Uh, most or, of it is. I'm, I'm sorry that. 2006, the Secure Offenses Act. Yeah, most of it is. I mean, it's it's been a number of bills that have sort of gone towards this. But right. yeah, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, either funded or built. The entirety of those 694 that stand today, the Trump administration has not built a single new mile of wall. They have done replacement projects to right. these barriers that yeah. went into place before them. But it's a really good question is they're asking for all of this new money. We still have the national emergency um, that money is supposed to go, go towards. And where are these mi- where are the another 700 going to go? People have said that, you know, a wall from sea to shining sea. We had Homeland, former Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly saying that that it doesn't make sense, that it, it wouldn't actually give you any added benefit. It would be a waste of money. It could have some detrimental effects. So if we already have 694, they want another $8.6 billion for another 700. That's basically over 1,000 miles. It's about 1,200 miles of border wall. The entire border is only 1,900 miles long. Where will it go? Yeah. Um, but don't get practical. <laughs> it's a good question, though. If, if we're going to have this I whole know, fight about... About the about the border wall, where will it go? What's well, so actually needed? That, the questions that I've never seen any answer to are uh, there are there uh, there is um, there's a lot of private land there um, right. that would have to be somehow acquired or condemned right. or whatever. Uh, that there are natural boundaries, exactly. wetlands, and uh, that. Be, they're very difficult to build a wall across. Right. right? That's, yeah, that's what I was referring and to. With the, the, the Those issues, it's, it's just not flat land just waiting for a right. wall or a pipeline or kind of whatever. That's why initially the assessment pretty consistently for years was that 700 miles is the goal. That's where we should be yeah. based on the natural barriers in other areas, private land, et cetera. It's also really fascinating that the least fenced state in the entire United States is Texas, which is responsible for the most miles of the border, a lot of that is not only because it's private land, and so the government would essentially have to do eminent domain, pay people a lot of money, but a significant majority of the border in Texas is the Rio Grande. It's a river. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also incredibly difficult and expensive for construction. And so the wall where it is built in Texas, and Texas is the least fenced, where it is built, it's often built 100 yards in on the U.S. side. So if they cross the river... oh. The, and get to the U.S. side, they're already on U.S. land, but they're on the other side. They're south of the wall. <laughs> so it's uh, there are a lot of practical considerations that people don't often talk about in the political debate over the border wall. No, I uh, don't hear any of those practical considerations coming out of the White House at all. Yesterday, we reported on a big cocaine bust up at Newark in Newark, New Jersey. Um, a container looked a little suspicious. They opened it up. And behind the packages of dried fruit, they found 
um, what was it, about one and a half tons of cocaine right. with a street value of about $70 million. Um, how would the wall stop that? <laughs> the, it is interesting that the, the Trump administration at different times has sort of shifted its um, its argument or its justification for the wall. Uh, no one seems to talk about this now, but there was a brief moment in time in which it was because terrorists were coming over the border. Mm-hmm. And then we had all these swirling statistics. Oh, OK, they're not coming over the border. They're actually coming to airports. And OK, maybe they're not confirmed terrorists. They're on a watch list. OK, maybe they're not on a watch list. They come from these countries. They, they, they might be refugees, but we never know. It, the, the justification has changed. They have focused a lot lately on drugs, on how yeah. the border well. wall would stop drugs. Um, as we know, we can sort of say over and over again, uh, most of the drugs that uh, come into this country or the drugs with particularly high street value, for example, uh, we do have occasionally like trebuchets of bales of marijuana that they all the creative right. ways in which they try and get those over the wall. Um, but they come through ports of entry. Um, they come through the intentional gaps uh, where the barrier exists. And this is a perfect example yesterday. Clearly, yeah. there is a drug demand in the United States that is prompting a billion-dollar right. business, trillion-dollar business around the world. But and going to get here somehow. Right. I don't know. Well, congratulations again on the new post at the LA <laughs> Times. Uh, you've got a very, very uh, busy beat here. <laughs> uh, keep keep you popping. Uh, and thanks for coming in. Mario O'Toole, LA Times.com. Bill Press Show.